That song that we just sang says it all. All of the work necessary for our salvation to secure that salvation was done on the cross. Amen. What a wonderful truth that we have to relish in, to motivate us to be the people God wants us to be. I sat right up here last Sunday, by the way. You have to get here early to get one of these front row seats. They're, they're getting taken quicker and quicker. But that's where I sat last Sunday as I listened to Pastor Dave's message on the worldliness of the church. And as I was listening to that message, I was really struck by the number of correlations and the number of connections between the topic he was preaching on last Sunday and the topic to which I had been assigned for today, the mysticism of the church. They go hand in hand, and I hope that I'll be able to unpack that in a way that is understandable to you, that makes sense, because it's important. The parallels are so numerous between worldliness and mysticism, so compelling. I caught myself as I was sitting down here trying to sort out last Sunday exactly how was I going to come at the message for today. And Pastor Dave reminded you that we are on this series, a 10-part sermon series on the church. And to be clear, when we speak of the church, we're speaking of the called out ones, the ecclesia, those whom God chose, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6, those who, upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, verse 13, and believing, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. That is a mark of everlasting identification for each of us who know Christ. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We have a future, and that future as the blood-bought body of Christ is in heaven with him. We need not doubt that. We need not fret about that. We need not second-guess that. God's done the work. And when God does the work, he finishes that work. Now, I... I purposely mention some of those qualifiers about the church, and they are ubiquitous, they are pervasive, they are all over the place in Scripture. But in today's world, detached as it is from objective truth, it's really a free-for-all trying to sort through what people mean by so many things that they say, including what they mean when they talk about the church. It's hard to know sometimes what the word evangelical means, what the word fundamentalist means, what the very word church means. What is the church? I remember some time ago having a conversation with a gentleman who professed to be a Christian, 
and with whom I believed myself to be on the same page with him pertaining to scriptural admonitions that are so clear in the word of God. I wasn't expecting there to be any debate. I wasn't expecting there to be any controversy. But as I shared this plain as the nose on your face scripture, he made this startling comment to me. I almost fell over when he said it. He said, well, you know, I just don't see it that way. And I thought, what other way is there to see it? So we can't take anything for granted nowadays. Common truths that we think we are all on the same page with nowadays are parsed and they're tailored to fit the individual specifications of people based on their personal preferences and their experience. So we don't want to take anything for granted, and I don't believe we have when we've talked about the church. After that gentleman said that, I was waiting for a punchline. Well, I don't see it that way. I was waiting for a punchline. I thought it was a joke. Sadly, it was not a joke. And so we have delved into the meaning of the church, who the church is, what the church does, what's the message that we preach. We've delved into that pretty deeply because there, we don't want there to be any misunderstandings. We don't want there to be any mistakes about who we see the church as being as we talked about the church's master and its mission, its message, its ministry. All vital truths defining the church. And I'd encourage you to put this sermon series in your gospel toolbox because it will serve you very well. Because in this culture in which we live, it is an upside-down, inside-out culture. It's nigh unto impossible to get any clarity and any definition on almost anything. Think about it. A number of years ago, and I know some of you were with us on this trip, it was uh, something of a mission trip to Virginia Beach. We were there to assist a church who held common beliefs as we do, doctrinally. They needed some work done on their church, and so a number of us went down there to help with that. And when we finished working, we hit the boardwalk, and we had a mission We wanted to talk with people about a certain question that would be very revealing of where they stood. And it was this question. Do you believe there is anything like objective truth? Is there anything like objective truth? Truth that no matter where you go in the world, there's not going to be any disagreement about that truth. We have common ground, right? And for the most part, uh, people were saying, yes, we believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. No matter where you go, people will hold to that truth. They'll say, yes, I believe that. Uh, We also were handing out 
bottles of water to people as we talked to them because, as I recall, it was a pretty warm day on that particular day. But I have to think now, looking back, if we had asked this question, how much common ground there would be. That trip wasn't that long ago. So not much time has transpired since then. But were we to ask this question today, do you believe that there is a fundamental difference between men and women? Mm, It deserves a chuckle, a sad chuckle. We wouldn't necessarily have commonality with a lot of people. In fact, they uh, might look at us kind of cockeyed and wonder maybe what was in the water that we were handing out. Uh, Should they drink it or shouldn't they drink it? Big difference in the way people think and feel and believe. Big difference in the response we would get to that question. And it's all due to the fact that our culture has untethered itself from objective truth. As Christians, the Word of God is our objective truth. It is the only truth. You don't find that truth anywhere else. It's right here in this book. That's what we believe. But that certainly isn't believed by many people, not even people in some churches. So we have a Supreme Court justice, I believe Pastor Dave mentioned this just a few weeks ago, who when asked under oath, what is a woman? And being a woman herself, she couldn't answer that simple question. She was stymied. This is the world we live in. We have teachers, mostly in government-run schools, indoctrinating grade school children behind their parents' backs to believe that they can be anything they want to be. If they don't want to be a boy, they can become a girl. If they don't want to be a girl, they can become a boy. I mean, come on, did you ever think, did you ever think you would see the day that such things were being propagated in our schools? (laughs) this stuff is mind-bending. It is also soul-desecrating. It defies logic. It defies reason. It defies common sense. And more importantly, it defies God. But this is the result when a culture detaches itself from objective truth. Is there any more a defiled, debased manifestation of our culture's willful, sinful disobedience to God than the unabashed, belligerent shaking of the fist in the face of God and saying, we are the creators We will make ourselves into what 
whatever image we desire. God, you say you have knit us together in our mother's wombs. We repudiate that. We reject that. We deny that. That may be your truth, God. And that may be the truth of silly people who read this Bible and say they follow you, but it's not our truth. We'll make ourselves into whatever we want to be. What do you base that on? What is that belief rooted in? Not much. Certainly not objective truth. Do you believe we have morphed ourselves into the pre-flood days of Noah? For the Lord says in Genesis 6-5, he looked at the wickedness of men in the earth and found that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only wicked, evil, continually. John MacArthur's commented on the verse in Judges 16, 17, verse 6. Judges 17, 6, where the Bible says that people are basically um, inventing their own truth, saying and doing whatever they want to say and do, everyone making their own truth. Everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. That's Judges 17.6. This kind of thinking paves the way for subjectivism. Our world is drowning in subjectivism. And subjectivism gives birth to the idea of, well, I'll believe anything I want to believe. I'll make things up if I need to. Subjectivism is rooted in mysticism. This is our world today. Everything is subjective. Even God is who we want him to be. You know that Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, and we're not going to a specific text of Scripture where we're going to be going down verse by verse, but there's a lot of Scripture to be given out, and you might want to jot some of these Scriptures down with little notations as to what they reference. Isaiah 5.20 pronounces woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's where we're at right now. Things are all topsy-turvy. What we once thought was wrong, we're now told it's right. What we once thought was right, we're now told, no, that's wrong. It's confounding. Why? How have we gotten to this place? 
in our world, our culture. Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says the human heart above all things, get this, the human heart above everything else is deceitful. And it is desperately wicked. And I don't think things are going to change much in the foreseeable future. Things aren't going to get progressively better. They're going to get progressively worse. If you put stock in Paul's writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the last of Paul's inspired letters in the New Testament, written to Timothy just before Paul's martyrdom, he wrote these sobering words, prophetic words, really. This warning, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That deception is happening in many churches across the landscape today. Now, I think we know what distinguishes the real church from brick-and-mortar buildings that advertise themselves as churches. I think we know the difference, the distinctives. That's why it's important to pay attention to these sermons that have been preached on the church. There's a sharp distinction between the true church and fake churches, brick-and-mortar churches, some of them at one time faithfully proclaimed the gospel. But over time, not overnight, but over time, they steadily succumbed to the siren call of the culture. And, and I think of it as a McDonald's theology. Have it your way. Whatever you want, however you like it, make it that way. Unfortunately, many churches have been on this very fevered pursuit of acceptance and relevance in the eyes of the world. We want to be like everybody else. We want to think about the way other people think. And you wonder, why isn't there a protest about some of this ridiculousness that's being said in our culture today. Why aren't people standing up and saying, that's not right? How can you say that? That's nonsense. Why have we gotten there? Because we want to be accepted. We don't want people to accuse us of bad things. We want to be liked, and so we accommodate the culture. And in the churches that accommodate the culture, in this fevered pursuit of relevance and acceptance. Those places have platforms from which false teachers now preach heretical doctrine. And they proudly fly the flag of spiritual anarchy on their flagpoles outside of their churches to let everybody know we're not the bad guys. 
we think everybody is okay. And no matter who you are and what you do and what you believe, you find acceptance here with us. It'll be a-okay. No issues. No problems. That's a, not a pretty picture. But it is a pretty predictable picture. The apostle in 2 Timothy 3 says we have a lot of people who are under the guise of spirituality and we, we embrace the wickedness of the world that goes from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, that's those brick-and-mortar churches that used to be one thing and now they've turned into something else. But what about churches that stand for truth, that proclaim truth, the real blood-bought church of Jesus Christ? What about those churches? What about the Christians that sit in pews or seats like ours every Sunday? What about them? Can they be tempted away from the truth? Is it possible for true Christians, is it possible for them to be tempted, to be tainted by the world? Well, we know the answer to that. It's pretty simple. The answer is yes, we can be. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. Conformed to what? Don't be conformed to the beliefs and values of this world. Those beliefs and, and values, MacArthur calls the contemporary thinking that forms the moral atmosphere of the world we live in, dominated by, guess who? Satan, dominated by Satan. So that being said, in the word of God, we should be able to connect the dots and know that anything dominated by Satan is tantamount to being conformed when we believe what he has to sell. We believe that and we're being conformed to insanity. We're being conformed to wickedness. That's what he promotes. In this godless culture, it's accepted by a lot of people. Not surprising that Satan should be so effective in his campaign. What's the Bible say about him? He's a liar. He's the father of lies. But listen, he is clever in the way he tells those lies. He is cunning. He's shrewd. He's a crafty operator. He's been in this business for a long time, and he knows that seduction is not going to be very effective if he disguises himself as the bleed man. Not many people are going to buy into that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we're told that Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. Not an angel of darkness. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So we're told, don't be outwitted by him. Isn't that interesting language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11? Don't be outwitted by him. Understand who he is. Know who he is. Understand his tactics. Stay ahead of the game. Arm yourself with the armor of God. Arm yourself with objective truth that stands the test of time. Arm yourself with that if you hope to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he's got a lot of schemes. His schemes are seen in every false theology, in every false religion, in every worldly enticement. Doesn't leave much out. Anything that contributes to a believer's love for the Lord being diluted, being diminished, being neutralized, anything that would disrupt the unity of a church and serve as an impediment, a barrier, a blockade to the gospel testimony of that church in a community. In any instances like that, you can be sure that Satan and his host of demonic influencers, they are on the job. We need to be on guard If we're not, our conscience will become dulled. Our vigilance can be diminished. And then we become easy prey for our adversary. Think of Satan's approach to Eve. I want you to turn to, I said we were going to have a lot of detached verses, but and we don't have a specific passage to look at. Somewhat we do when we get to Psalm 19, which Pastor Dave read this morning. But look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Pastor quoted uh, Barnhouse last week. Barnhouse was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, formerly pastored by James Boyce. I think I got that backwards. James Boyce was there first, and then it was Donald Gray Barnhouse. But he had this great illustration. He said to his congregation, sometime I want you to read the Bible by its punctuation. Leave out the words, just read it by its punctuation. Interesting request. So he stood with his Bible open, and he began to read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Period, comma, semicolon. Period, colon, question mark. Well, he didn't get to the question mark until Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The first question mark that appears in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where Satan comes to Eve and says, let me ask you something, Eve, I'm paraphrasing. Let me ask you something, Eve. Do you really believe, are you so naive was the insinuation Are you so naive that you would believe what God has said when he said you can eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat of that one particular tree? Everything else is game. Help yourself. Enjoy yourself. Make a great salad tonight for your husband from all those other trees. 
but don't you eat from that one tree. If you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to know good from evil just like God. Do you think that that's what he really meant, Eve? Genesis 3.1 is ground zero for undermining the veracity and the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's word. It starts there. Planting doubts. Is God's word enough? Did God get it wrong? He should be updating himself, is what people say today. What you believe, this old-time religion, that needs to be severely updated. You're just not with it. You're not with the times. Because the times... They are a changing. <laughs> For you young people, that's Bob Dylan, by the way. <laughs> God has to keep up. If you're not rooted anything, these in anything, these arguments can sound very, very convincing, and you can begin to second guess yourself and ask yourself, well, maybe that's true. I mean, this is 2020. Just checking. This is 2023. Things have changed. You still believe that stuff? Pastor Dave read from Psalm 19. This is where we need to be rooted. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. What is the law? It's what God says. It's everything God says. It's not just the Ten Commandments. The law of God is what God says. In Psalm 19, the psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect. And when you're in sync with the law of the Lord, your soul will be revived. The testimony of the Lord is sure in an age where nothing is sure. The psalmist said the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. We think we're pretty simple-minded, and the world probably looks at some of the things and listens to some of the things that we say and say, those are some simple-minded people. No wonder they fall for the things that they fall to. <laughs> I, I do remember after 9-11... John MacArthur said to his congregation shortly after that had happened, and there was a big celebration. It wasn't a celebration. It was a commemoration of all those who died at the Twin Towers. And one religious leader after another religious leader after another religious leader, and they were all decked out in their robes, their caps, their colors. And one by one, they pranced to the platform, and they talked about what they believed. And MacArthur said to his congregation, are you intimidated by those people? Are you intimidated by those people? Do you think those people are smart? Do you think they're wise? And do they make you feel simple-minded? He said, I've got a truth for you. Turn and look at the people around you sitting here in church this morning, he said. 
because those are the really smart people. They've been made wise by the word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right. Do we need joy in our world today? Do we need to be able to wake up and be joyful no matter what the circumstances? Psalmist said the precepts of the Lord, they are right. And when you read them, when you live in them, it rejoices your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens you. The rules of the world of the, the Lord are, are true. The rules of the Lord are righteous altogether. You believe the world is enamored by those verses in Psalm 19? Hardly. You ask them about that, and you're likely to hear something like, well, you know what? We just it's a lot more convenient to just make our own law. By the way, we see that happening. Age-old laws rooted in the Constitution and the Word of God being rewritten, being thrown out. We don't believe that the law of God is right and pure and sure. We're going to write some new laws. We're going to make some new commandments. Things have to change. Where have we gotten all of this from? How has this evolved? It's evolved simply and purely because we have detached ourselves from objective truth, God's truth. And that's a very slippery slope for any Christian and for any church to begin to do that. You're going to end up somewhere you really don't want to end up. Do you know the signs of impending vulnerability. You want to know if you've begun to fall prey for any of this? C.J. Mahaney mentioned a few of the signs of impending vulnerability in a book that he wrote years ago. He actually edited the book. And he said this. Here's some of the clues. You've fallen for any of this garbage that the world is throwing at us. He says, people can sit in church and they can look outwardly the same as they've always looked, but on the inside, they're drifting. And there's a certain malaise. They've become fatigued. They've become sluggish, listless. They might sit in church, but they're really not happy to be there. They sing the songs, but without any affection whatsoever. They listen to preaching without conviction. They hear, but they do not apply. Sin doesn't grieve them anymore the way it used to. Passion for Christ cools. Excitement for real, true engagement with the local church. It's just not there anymore. It's vanished. Eagerness for evangelism. All of these things have gone by the wayside. Have you been there in that mindset, with that spirit? Have you been there or are you there now? If we are we need to take 
radical steps because some inroads are being made into our churches, into our lives. And we can speak of many, but somebody is asking right now, okay, when are you going to specifically say the word mysticism? I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> because right now, I'm just, I just want to touch on this thing, but they're so closely related. Mysticism is asking yourself, well, what did I get out of church today? What did it do for me? When you go to church, what does it do for you? How do you feel? It's not what it's about, is it? We're not here to be made to feel good. Oh, I know when we sing songs, uh, there are times I get a shiver uh, up my spine because I love that song. But we're not looking for shivers and shakes to say, that was a good church meeting. What about our hearts? Where are our hearts? Subjectivity and mysticism are all over the church. Spurgeon said the church has been mossed over with these things. You see an old building that has vines and ivy and moss all over it. Nobody's done anything about it, and it's just taken over. Spurgeon said that's where the church is today with these things. The church has been mossed over, and he said that 165-some years ago. How would he know that would happen? Probably because he had a habit of reading the Bible. And the Bible predicts how things go when the Word of God is no longer given attention. We can't live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Dating back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we need more than the Bible to guide us. It's not enough. Can't rely on 2 Peter 1.3, that God has granted to his people all things pertaining to life and godliness. By the way, in the Greek, what that verse means is that God has granted to his people all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's exactly what it means. What it says is what it means. Just like the word all in Romans 8.28 God causes all things to work together for good. In the Greek, that literally means God causes all things to work together for good by his sovereignty and by his providence. But now we can't trust the word of God. I've got to rely on some kind of sensation. I need something other than this. And you know what? When I, when I can talk to people and say, well, I had a premonition. Praise God. I had a dream. God gave me a vision. Well, you sound real spiritual when you say those things. Other people look at you and say, I wish I could be that close to God. When Beth Moore testifies to having verbal communications on a regular basis with God. I don't think so. 
She might be conversing with someone, but if you read the Bible, verbal communication from God was a rarity, a rarity in Scripture. But people today who routinely walk around and say, I heard from God. I was on my knees last night and the moon rose in a certain way. The light shone in my window and I knew that was God speaking to me. It made me have goosebumps. Where else could that come from? But God, it was God. So we buy into that because of being detached from objective truth. You'll fall for almost anything that's being promoted in our world today. I can remember standing at the kitchen sink in the house we live in in Derry Road. Standing at that sink where my mother used to stand. And sometimes I think, wow, I'm, I'm right here where my mom was. And some people would say, did you feel, did you feel her presence? This isn't a joke. Did you feel her presence? A young coad who was brutally murdered not that long ago was asked by Nancy Grace on national television, does your dead daughter speak to you? And she said, oh, unmistakably, yes. Unmistakably, yes. She speaks to me a lot. What does she say? She says, good going, Mom. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. She speaks to me like that. Some people are at their kitchen sinks and are saying, God spoke to me. (laughs) Wonder why he didn't speak to everybody. In the scriptures, in spite of that, we'll go on and go on and go on. We say certain songs... Certain songs make us feel close to God. You know, I was raised on hymns. Can you believe it? I was raised on hymns. I'm not embarrassed by that. that. I'm not apologizing for that. And some of those old songs, when I hear them, they make me feel a certain way. But I don't believe it's God speaking to me. I don't interpret that as, Lord, what are you saying? Because I feel so close to you right now. Never mind that I don't read my Bible. Never mind that I don't have a devotional life. Right now, that song made me feel close to you. And when the drums are played in a church, sorry about this, Aaron. When drums are played in the church, it just drives me away from God. I can't feel God. I can't sense God. When did you read your Bible last? I need to find a way to close this down. Pastor Dave often says, you know, I usually have much more material than I can get through, right? Yeah, I've got notebooks of material here. And if any of you want to stay afterwards, and go through it with me. (laughs) I wonder if I'll have any takers. That's why I said, don't raise your hand. 
But do you remember the little boy not too long ago? His name was Alex Malarkey. When he was six years old, he was in a severe car accident, and he survived. And a book was written, published by none other than Tintail House Publishing. And the book was talking about how he went to heaven and he came back. The boy who came back from heaven, thank you, Tyndale. And what they wrote about that book to sell it was this. If you read this book, what happened to this little boy when he went to heaven? You will read about a spiritual encounter. Our world loves that stuff. Our culture eats that up. And so does the church too many times. But if you read this book, Tyndale said, you will learn a lot of things about heaven. You'll learn a lot of things about angels. You'll hear a lot of things about how you can hear the voice of God. That's Tyndale House. You know, five years after that book hit the bestseller list, because everybody was snatching it up. I heard that book promoted from a platform in church. Buy this book. Get this book. It's amazing. This boy had an encounter with God. Five years after that book hit the bestseller list, Alex Malarkey wrote an open letter to Lifeway, which is a store that sells a lot of religious material, a lot of books. And this is what he wrote in that open letter. Just get this. He says, I didn't die. I didn't go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me a lot of attention. But when I'd read, made those claims, I'd never read the Bible. People have profited, he says, from those lies. They should read the Bible, he says. Because the Bible is enough. The Bible, he says, is the only source of truth. Those who market these materials need to be called to repentance and they need to hold to the belief that the word of God is enough. Oh, that we would hear what he is saying and stop listening to everything other than the word of God. Our shivers and shakes and our premonitions. I often think when people pick up these books, God is saying, save your money. Don't buy that book. Because I've already given you a book. And it was written by me. Read it. Trust it. 
believe it. But I don't feel the same. I don't get the goosebumps. I don't feel like God is talking to me. Well, maybe you need to do, and maybe I would need to do some introspection and expose those things to God's word. Mysticism, we're drowning in it. We're drowning in it. You say, oh, so you're one of those guys that just thinks you can never have a good feeling when you're in church. You're one of those guys that thinks when you pray, uh, you, you, you can't feel inspired when you pray. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying don't get out over your skis on these things and misinterpret things. God's speaking to us all right. He's speaking to us. And he has been for a long time. Are we being obedient to his word? Are we listening to him? That's the voice of God. Father, we, we have a lot of things that we need to repent of in the course of our lives. We get swept up in all the emotion and all the fanaticism and the radical views and ideas that circulate in the world. They're all around us. And if we are not tied to objective truth, we will fall prey. We will fall prey to this subjective religion that the world loves and this mystical religion which the world loves will fall for it and we'll find ourselves separated from the only word that counts the word of God your word so may we recommit ourselves to devotion to you and to the Bible so that we will be the people you want us to be. God, grant us faith to do that. In a world that will laugh at us, mock us, think we're simple-minded, never mind. We'll follow you. We fail, but we confess our sins, and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. And we will persevere because you persevere with us. So we commit ourselves to you this morning, thanking you for your love, your goodness, your grace, your mercy in our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, we give this thanks. Amen.